Hello and welcome to University. I'm your host, Joe Fisher, and in this series, I'll be speaking to some of our remarkable researchers from the University of Southampton. We will discuss their work, how they've had to adapt during this year, and most importantly, getting to know the person behind the research over a virtual cuppa. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Shelley Cobb. Shelley is an Associate Professor of Film at the University of Southampton. Her research project, Calling the Shots, focuses on the contemporary history of women within the UK film industry. As part of the research, Shelley and her team interviewed 50 women in key filmmaking roles, including directors, writers and producers, to hear their experiences firsthand. So grab yourself some popcorn, sit back and let's meet Shelley, the person behind the research. Action. Welcome to the podcast, Shelley. It's it's great to have you here. Do you have a cup of tea with you ready for our, our chat today? Uh, yeah, a cup of peppermint tea is usually my, ah. my thing for afternoon. <laughs> nice, yeah, nice and calming. We've had a few coffees on the podcast as well, which um, I have to sort of obviously, you know, change the chat from tea to coffee, but peppermint tea, <laughs> yeah. much calmer than the normal um, caffeinated tea. Thank you for joining me today. Would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners today? Sure. I'm Shelley Cobb. I'm an associate professor of film and the film department of humanities at the University of Southampton, of course. And I have been at Southampton for 12 years this spring, which is, yeah, that's, that's quite a time now that I think about <laughs> it, but, um, but happy to, to be here. And in the, um, I did actually start off in the English department and I still kind of work across the two on occasion. Um, at, um, when it's possible. And my main areas of teaching in the department are around women in film and also film and television adaptation of you know novels to film, TV, that kind of thing. Oh, cool. And uh, I recent, relatively recently finished a large Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project on British women filmmakers, okay. which you can ask me about if you want. I'd love to <laughs> but, ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. That is sort of one of the, I guess, the kind of key, the, the key area of research I'm kind of more generally known for. Absolutely. So speaking of which, do you mind just giving us a bit of background on that particular research project and why it was so important to delve into for you and your team? Well, my research going all the way back to my PhD is on um, women's authorship of film. So women behind the camera. And so I've always been interested in women's authorship generally across literature and film because I previously studied literature before focusing in on film. And I just, it's always been aware of the marginalization of women authors. Now that's changed a lot in literature. It's very clear that there are women authors everywhere and they're winning prizes and they're still definitely marginalized mm. and sidelines in lots of ways. But it, the film industry, it's very clear. Mm. When I first started doing research, you know, no woman had won the Oscar yet for best director. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that fact kind of was still boggling my mind and that no one else was well it felt like no one else was really thinking about it very much mm. but the the project came out of my wider interest in women and filmmakers around the world but focused on the UK um in part because there's data there's so that's one of the things that happens is just counting the numbers of women right so just to prove mm. that that there are fewer women in these roles in these key roles like being a director 
you know, just the not winning an Oscar never really convinces everyone. They're like, well, maybe they're just not good, good enough. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> that's not really just it, but <laughs> that's not even it. But there's been data that exists for Hollywood for a, for a while now, since the late 90s, coming out of San Diego State University, that looks at the numbers of women directors, writers, producers, cinematographers, and editors. And that data gets widely used around the world as the kind of the evidence that there's fewer women directors. Mm. But there's this thing that has been, there was for a long time across many European nations that said, well, we must be better than that, right? We're smaller nations. We have national public funding. We do small independent films, which on the whole do better with women. So we must be better than Hollywood. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of, I don't, I doubt that. <laughs> so let me research that and find out. So with my research partner, Linda Ruth Williams, who's now at Exeter, we put in this proposal to do the data for Britain itself. Yeah, so it has the UK yeah. film industry has its own specific data about the numbers of women working in key roles, making films behind the screen, and also to interview women working in those roles. Because the second part is not just the numbers, but the history of women filmmakers and women's authorship and yeah. you know feminist academics we know that women have always been sidelined in history they get lost altogether they aren't allowed to participate in what we think of as history right with a capital h in the first place mm. so to, we wanted to interview women get their stories on the record because there's a kind of infamous history within film studies that the very beginnings of film before it was in the studios before it was unionized had a lot of women making films in the early silent period, okay. right? In the, in the days of silent cinema, where, you know, there's no synchronized sound, things are making short films, that just the beginnings of cinema, there were lots of women owning their own studios, making films, being in front of the camera, behind the camera. But even just the writing of that history within film studies was very focused on the big name men and, and other women who were doing big things weren't included. Okay. And we kind of thought... What if a bunch of interviews with those women had existed somewhere? Would that, maybe that would have made a difference. So that was the goal for the interview. So yeah. we, we did interview nearly 60 women across those key roles, including some many people will have heard of, like Gurinder Chadha. So there's a bank of those that will go into various outputs and will end up in an archive um, for a future use. It's so interesting. And, you know, we're talking about women here, but there are sort of other sort of groups and sort of communities who may be equally as underrepresented? Is that another sort of area of interest or um, that needs to be sort of explored more, do you think? Uh, yeah, well, in our project, we actually also did identify women by their race or ethnic background, depending okay. upon as much as we could find that data and corroborate that data. So we have data, and we use that contested term, British, Asian, the minority ethnic, um, because that is government terminology and that is sort of how we categorized women but we do break it down as much as possible into individual specific categories so we do there are of course even fewer of those women relative to the population and in some roles they just certain years they just never get a job as say a cinematographer Mm. ever not Mm. on any British film despite the fact that several hundred are made every year so yeah that's a really important issue and that was built into uh, my project from the beginning and it is now of course as you pay attention to kind of arts and entertainment news that's a really big issue in thinking about diversity you know you think about 
like campaigns, Twitter campaigns like Oscars So White or BAFTAs So White. Yeah. Those have been really important for raising the profile of that concern. And that concern is now sort of reaching behind the scenes as well. So mm. I have colleagues at other universities that do dedicated research on race and ethnic identity. Okay. My research project has been, well, it started in 2014 with sort of a bit of luck and good timing has been a part of the burgeoning discussion and debate about these issues. And that's been a real privilege as a researcher to yeah. be able to be a part of those discussions. Do you think the increase in those discussions is is a, a, a positive step forward and, and an important part of making change happen in terms of opening up filmmaking to all groups and, and everyone who wants to get involved? Yeah, they are really important. I think the important thing also to remember, though, is that they aren't new. Yeah. We have had these discussions before perennially a few times, even in my own lifetime, <laughs> and they date all the way back again to kind of the early days of cinema. I try to bring that into discussion as well and say, like, we're not the first people to talk about this, so we need to learn some from the past, right, which is what we try to do. And then we also need to sustain the conversations because they, ha they have a habit of going quiet and disappearing at some point. Why are there so few women in the film industry, in your opinion? It's not that it's like a complicated answer. It's a complex answer because there's multiple things, right? Mm. And it's never just one thing. Like lots of people want to write it off as, well, women have babies and then yeah. they stay at home with their babies. And it's like, okay, well, there are lots of industries where women work full time and have babies. Mm. So <laughs> so then the, then the question is like, you well then, so what are the other structures that are keeping women with children from being able to work in the industry. Well, one is because it's extremely freelance industry. And to be to be honest, I would say actually it's freelance nature is the key reason why so many it's so, it lacks so much diversity because it's not a sustainable life income wise. Mm. Uh, it's just not like we have fantasies about what it means to be a creative person mm. to work in the industry. And it, you still can on occasion get jobs, say for the BBC, which are permanent, but even the BBC outsources so much to independence. So it's a constant hustle for money. Yeah. And it means you have to jump from one job to the next. So you mm. don't have built in holiday time or sick time you don't have access to childcare. Yeah. the film industry is one of the industries with the lowest rates of parenthood not just for women but for men as well now for women it's worse but you're less likely to be a parent in the film and television industry than you are in almost any other industry <laughs> because the working life right is constant it's late at night it's really more you have to go abroad location shooting right does filmmaking have to be, you know, a seven, you know, a six a.m. to eleven p.m. job? Mm. Does it have to be done in three weeks or less? Now, financially, the men, and it is mostly the men with money, would say yes, right? But there are starting to have some kind of conversations and debate about things and a way to try to structure things differently. Job sharing has become a new thing to try to fix that. There's this term. It, the term is homophily. That those of us who kind of study these things around workplaces and all kinds of workplaces use to put it in like super kind of common terms it basically means being feeling most comfortable with someone who's most like you okay. whether that's age or race or gender or class you feel most comfortable you understand people who are most like you um, now that so that process basically means those who empower right have the money appreciate, understand, connect with, have empathy with, are excited by okay. things that are recognizable yeah. to them, that make some sense to them. So if you're a white, cis, straight, middle-class man who's going to give somebody some money, you want to pick a, 
a writer you can trust. And you right, and that writer you trust is probably someone you've worked with before. And it might have been someone you worked with before when they first began because you recognized them. They sort of seemed like you when you were that age. Or you recognized them as someone else that you'd worked with. Oh, that reminds me of so-and-so. So there's that kind of cultural habit we have yeah. that then decreases people's options of who you work with, right? And people still are resistant to using these terms. But these, And I know we like to use the term unconscious bias, but it is, it is cultural sexism and racism, right? Because what we do is we assume people in authority look like a white man. Yeah. Like you're a teacher, you're a doctor, you're whatever, you're a lawyer. You think of someone in authority, you think of the images on screen, they're white men, right? And it's just, it, that bleeds out into our culture, that our interactions with each other and sort of the assumption that yeah. women and people of color are still always new. They haven't been around long enough. They don't have the experience, mm. even if they can sort of prove it on their CVs. So my view, based on the research that I've done and interviews I've had people, is that there are two things. One is just the freelance nature and the structure of the industry itself and how difficult that is to sustain that without having kind of money and an army of people to help you through it mm. as a person. And also then this kind of still embedded sexist and racist culture that we have that doesn't see authority and experience and genius in, in anyone who doesn't look like a, a white man. So in terms of the, the data that you've got from your research project and the archival interviews that you've got, is that sort of making a difference in terms of, I don't know, highlighting issues within the industry or impacting change in attitude? Is there some sort of response to the work that you've been doing? Yeah. So over the years that we were doing the project, and of course, since then as well, from 2014 to 2018, and but still since then as well, we did lots of public engagement in terms of everything from students to the wider public. Uh, we also had an ongoing relationship with the British Film Institute because mm-hmm. the very ra- the raw data of the films, what counts as a British film, you know, where it was weighed and where the money comes from, that came from the British Film Institute. So they were a partner with us from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And they, they have for a time tried in various ways to increase their diversity and equality in the kinds of films they support and make. And for a long time, it was very much kind of volunteer or sort of, again, sort of like, it was never pushed, well, it wasn't so much that it wasn't pushed hard, it's just it was never required in a very strict kind of way. There's ways you could get some benefit from saying, I'm going to have more women or I'm going to have, you know, so many kind of young interns from these kinds of backgrounds and things, yeah. and you could get some benefit from that. And, you know, at different points, I've been in different events where me and a few other people from, say, like that community group, that campaign group, Raising Films, but also my friend, the woman who started the F word, that kind of F rating, (laughs) Holly Tarkini over at the Bath Film Festival. We would be in these kind of meetings and someone would say, oh, well, we're, you know, we're still kind of, we're still expecting that change comes from people, you know, wanting to choose to do better. Mm -hmm. And those of us who kind of research these things are sitting there and going, history does not suggest that that's the case (laughs) history suggests that people need to be pushed and prodded and told yeah you know and demanded Uh, anyway to kind of cut that long ramble short the bfi now has targets for its film fund on diversity and equality and they have been thinking about it for a long time but they have recognized that that my research and other people's work along and advocacy alongside Mm. was helpful in making that possible yeah. and pushing them forward and making that a conversation that was acceptable. They self-report. They're being very transparent. Okay. You know, they have said to me, 
having those numbers, having that clear cut data to say that this is an ongoing problem and it has been at least since 2002 when the data starts and it continues to this day and there has been no real change is useful for us to make, you know, those who are working in the diversity office there say it's useful for us to have that yeah. so we can say, look, we're not any better than Hollywood and we need to do yeah. something about that. Hopefully, you know, things will steadily improve, even if you have to keep sort of shouting uh, loudly about, you know, the issues and reminding <laughs> people in the industry that, you know, um, change needs to happen and, and it, you know, then you're not going to forget about it. Yeah. Um, that sounds really positive. And you briefly mentioned Me Too as well. And, and I feel I can't talk to an expert in film without sort of bringing it up. And, you know, although perhaps the, the hashtag has died down slightly, um, it's all prevalent. You know, it's, it's a continuing problem. What was your experience when the sort of movement developed and, and grew? What was your experience of that as sort of a, a, an expert in film? One of the most interesting things about that in terms of the research practice that happened while we were still doing the interviews and we had, a, you know, and already kind of before that, these kinds of questions about equality in film were becoming more prevalent. And we've, it was clear that the responses to our questions shifted over time, not drastically, but like there was much more like, yeah, there's a real problem here. When previously it was like, yeah, there's a bit of a, I don't know, there's a bit of a problem, <laughs> a little more hedging in the beginning. Yeah. I think there's... There's a lot of pressure in the industry to behave properly and to not rock the boat. Because, you know, it's in, a, in the industry, freelance industry like that, you get your next job because, because of someone you, who, who recommends you. Yeah. And it's a real risk to come out and name names of people who've behaved badly, the powerful people, you know. So the Me Too movement, being specific about Weinstein, that's really... And it was effective because so many came out was so clearly convincing and it was impossible to ignore and obviously yeah. even went to <laughs> to prison and the courts. So it was clear that that was giving women more room to be more open and vocal about it and to say, yeah, actually, this has been a bad ex- part of my experience mm. and I'm going to do something about that. So some of the women have very carefully kind of created small production companies that are mostly women working for them, supporting other women through it, making women's films. Others have created sort of more clear-cut routes towards being able to complain or hold someone who's behaved badly accountable. Mm-hmm. That even the various unions have, you know, the Actors Guild and the Writers Guild and others have created kind of resources of ways that you can report or even just ask for help. Someone that I met in various kind of events and things like this is a woman, Ida O'Brien, and she's one of the ones that is leading that movement. You know, if you have a sort of action director in an action film, she's the sex director, okay. right? And she's the one who's, <laughs> she's sitting there saying, okay, if we're going to have a sex scene, we need to do it in a safe environment that makes people feel comfortable and safe and where they don't feel, you know, because there's these notorious stories from the past where women have been emotionally abused in sex scenes in order to get, quote-unquote, what the usually male director wants, right? And so this is quite a sea change, actually. And and I don't actually know anyone who's specifically doing research on that, but, of course, it's something I ask people now about, like, how does this affect you differently? Do you, how much do you think, you know, hiring a, a sex scene director is important for, you know, protecting your people working on your set and, mm. and you know more and more people recognize that that is an important value in the same way that you would have medical personnel on set for big scary action scenes in yeah. case something happens right <laughs> um and the high profile nature of it helps yeah i mean if it, me too and it, i still think it is has been very specific about harassment and specifically sexual harassment and violence and that's good and i think it needs to stay specific on that but it has 
interconnected these other wider conversations about equality and, yeah. and the lack of equality. And that's a good thing because they are imbricated in the same ways that motherhood is as well. Mm. Certainly one thing is it's meant that my research, the research that Calling the Shots has produced, does have more traction and gets more attention than it might have done at a different time. Yeah. And that's value. That's <laughs> well, I suppose that's valuable in some, in certain kinds of ways, but it's valuable in the sense that it then can have an impact. Yeah. yeah. And then actually help people make change. Different filmmakers and other groups have said having this has made it easier or more effective for me to say the things I want to say yeah. in my job on the set or to these groups or to these funders, etc. And that's, that's just Wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's what it is. It's great. It's 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 all part of, you know, um feeding into making change happen and, and those conversations and, and although, you know, we've touched on that there's still a way to go, it's talking about sort of having specific directors and, and things like that just makes sense. But um yeah, change is happening, which is really good and, and hopefully it will continue to That's the key thing. That's yeah. the key concern yeah, is that we get these kinds of shifts and changes and then they they stall. Yeah. yeah. And that's my my one goal is to try to be able to kind of keep up on doing some of this work and sort of to keep the the fire to the industry's feet. Because if we don't do that, if we don't keep saying actually things haven't changed, things haven't changed, mm. it'll too easily get lost. I want to move on on a sort of a diagonal slant really and I don't know if this is too personal a question but have you ever considered going into filmmaking yourself um and you know was that uh, an original plan or have you always been more interested in sort of the research and academic side of film no yeah I am sort of that cliche of the uh <laughs> film studies <laughs> academic who wanted to be a filmmaker when I was younger yeah so when I was in high school I did drama theater and really good at English literature but I also did some like after school video like video camera classes and stuff with some of my guy friends and so I went on to university and I went into a kind of a communications and media department in the states okay. that had a kind of route to production and in my first year there I wrote an essay and I still have this essay actually I found it not long when I started doing the research project um, that I wrote where I, I said I'm going to be a female filmmaker and I'm going to make films about women with all female crews and this is a fair while ago now, because I'm a woman of a certain age, <laughs> um, when in the early 90s, it wasn't something that we talked about, like that the media talked about. It was even before that research that comes out of San Diego started being done in 1998. And, I, and I, it was clear to me that there was underrepresentation and under access. And, and I wanted to, to do that. And I had a very clear agenda about how I was going to do that. I think it was kind of unusual. Um, but for various reasons personal and otherwise, I ended up changing universities and going into a creative writing and literature degree. And I kept dabbling in film along the way, always, never kind of, it never dropped, even as I moved more towards the scholarly side, doing postgraduate degree, um, kind of cross English and film. And that's, I kind of dropped that, but then took this circuitous back around, route back around through English literature and film adaptation and mm. novels, you know, the adaptation of Virginia Woolf's Orlando is this amazing film by Sally Potter, which is one still one of my favorites. It's just a beautiful adaptation, and it's it ended up being part of my my thesis when I came back around to sort of saying, actually, I still am interested <laughs> in women and in women in women in film, and now studying them and what, and what they do, writing about them. So, 
Yeah. So when we when we launched the project again, I wrote a little piece online about, you know, kind of linking my research back to that younger me who wanted to be the woman filmmaker with a with all women crew doing research now as a as a woman academic with an all female <laughs> research crew <laughs> interviewing, you know, women about their their work in the film industry. So so I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you briefly mentioned about teaching as well um, and your work at the university. How have you found everything over the last sort of six months or so? And, and how are you feeling about sort of the upcoming new term and the challenges that, that we're sort of facing? That's a tricky one. So going into it this year, we're doing our best and we're trying to be safe under much guidance as we get from the university while understanding the pressures, the financial pressures pressures that we're under yeah it's a lot of pressure on staff it's a lot of hard work to make an online lecture mm-hmm. and to make it make sense and to think about having online sessions and making them viable and I miss being in the classroom yeah people listening to this podcast won't see me but you've seen me like my hands are all over the place <laughs> and so and I usually use myself as an example of things so that's that's a small thing but it's just a big yeah. change and yeah you know, we want it to go as well as possible, but the yeah. ultimate, you know, the ultimate thing here is people's health and safety and, and not just from COVID, but from stress. Yeah. As a member of the union and someone who's on the executive union, my concern, continuing concerns is for the stress levels of staff members across all the areas of the university. But in some ways, I'm, I'm also looking forward to at least trying it, to try, try to have things online, to see the students' faces. Yeah. I think the bottom line is we need to be easy on ourselves and, mm. and on the students and realize we're all doing this in a strange situation yeah. and we got to be generous and patient. Yeah. Have you found that you've had to be sort of creative in preparation with, um, you know, developing lectures and, and interpreting them for an online space? Or are you trying to keep it as simple as you can while not sort of um, impacting the content and the quality of, of the teaching yeah so I think in some ways it's a bit of both so just keeping it simple is good because it keeps the stress down a little bit trying to learn a whole lot of new technology yeah. takes time and it's yeah. really frustrating yeah. even for kind of film people but I always laugh that like honestly like when we walk into a room all the technology breaks for some reason like trying to get a film <laughs> on screen is just a kind of habit is a thing that happens but you know but some of it's just by virtue of of access like we we show films that are only available on dvd so there's been a lot of long discussion about like do we have to replace all those films is there some way we can stream them without breaking copyright mm-hmm. there's been a lot a lot of discussion about that um one of my colleagues in the film part department's taken the lead and i'm so grateful to him because it's just been an ongoing it's still we're still kind of trying to resolve that you know and so i so that part of me i totally feel for the people who are practical because that kind of you feel that, you know, because if yeah. you change a film, you have to change your reading. You have to think that this can have a knock on effect. Yeah. Right. So it's trying to keep it simple without with reducing too much change of the content, because just learning the technology is a lot. That sounds incredibly complicated. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it all goes well Thank as you. well as possible. <laughs> I can't imagine how difficult it is. And, it, you know, it is a case of just, I suppose, seeing how things go and, and learning as you go as well. But I mean, when you mentioned about sort of copyright films films being on dvd it's just something that you you know people like myself who aren't in the department might not even think about and um so that sounds like an incredible challenge so um yeah good luck to the to the whole team for that i I really hope it works out okay and, and things go as smoothly as possible 
curious actually with your sort of research into women in the film industry are there any um films that you'd recommend to listeners or to myself that would sort of introduce us to more female filmmakers um directors um cinematographers that kind of thing would, would you sort of suggest any that that would be good to add to the list when i when i teach my module it's called women in hollywood i not every film i teach is by no means by a woman because it's it's about the history of filmmaking and different representations. Yeah. But one of my favorite ones I teach is A League of Their Own. Okay. It's this amazing film about the women's baseball team during the war. Um, okay. And it's a great female friendship team and a sports film and a film about a period of women's history that was lost okay. um, and then gained a bit of traction after she made this film. Um, the woman who directed it also directed Big with Tom Hanks back in the 80s. It's a woman director who was an actress on television for a very long time. And I'm sorry, but my brain has just died. <laughs> okay. Can I just quickly add? If anyone is going to the cinema, <laughs> go see Rocks by Sarah Gavron. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I interviewed Sarah and the film has this diverse group of women filmmakers behind the screen. It's about a young group of British women on the screen. And I'm going to see it as soon as I possibly can. And I just recommend that anyone Amazing. either put it on your list for when you feel comfortable, when you can get it and watch it. Or if you are one of those people who's going to the cinema, go see Rocks. I sound like an advert. I don't mean to. It's just that it's a, it's a special film and the amount of women who worked behind it. And it was funded by the BFI and it's really supported young minority women. So that's why I want it to do well. Fantastic. Absolutely. And I, I, I trust your recommendations completely. As, as, <laughs> Thank you. So no, no pressure at all. But um, <laughs> no, that sounds, I will be adding it to my list for later. I'm not quite ready to go to the cinema. Yeah, no, but, see me neither. Um, so <laughs> good things come to those who wait. Eh? Yeah. I always ask our guests on the podcast if they have an object or something that um, in their house or in their office that um, reminds them of a point in their career or um, they sort of hold very close to them, it's very dear to them. Do you have do you have anything to share with us? Yeah, I'm doing some research on now. Well, I've done the research on I need to do some writing on it, is the film 9 to 5 okay. from 1980 with Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. And in 1980, it was the second highest grossing film in the United States after The Empire Strikes Back. Okay, It's a comedy, so it's a bit kind of a screwball comedy in, in certain kinds of ways. But it's also about these three women who take over their office and implement all these feminist principles around having a crush and job sharing. Um, and it always blows my students' minds away every year. <laughs> and um, I love this film so much and I and I kind of collect postcards and things about it. And I'm now, I did some archival research and now I'm writing about it that this summer for our 15th anniversary, my husband gave me an original 1980 film poster oh, that's huge and framed and <laughs> on my wall, <laughs> on our wall in the front room. Um, so that just gives you a test to you how much I I love this film for all the Fantastic. kind of complex, interesting things it does. And it's also just funny. Brilliant. I've loved our chat and I could I could sort of ask more questions and, and find out more about things, but um, we only have a little bit of time together, I'm afraid. Yeah, so, but thank you so much for um, joining me today. How can people listening find out more about your research and your work? Where can they find you? So the research project, the funded project, has a website and the title is womencallingtheshots.com. You can always Google my name and Shelley Cobb and calling the shots or women shots, something and it'll probably still come up. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where like a lot of our resources and some of the, the data sets are, uh, et cetera. 
some of the wider research I do, my staff page lists all those okay. those things I'm interested in from television to film adaptation and so forth. And, and I think my book, Adaptation, Authorship and Women Filmmakers, is in the library. Fantastic. I always end, end our interviews with one um, very important tea-based question, just to continue the kind of the, the tea puns. Um, sure. We started by talking about tea. Is there a particular um, fictional film character that you would like to share a cup of tea with? Oh, oh, um, gosh, you, oh, you kind of stumped me. That's a good one. In that film, 9 to 5, Lily Tomlin plays kind of, so I guess they're not, they're a team, but she's kind of plays a central role. She's got this kind of crazy kind of snark sense about <laughs> and she's just the kind of person that you'd want to sit and chat with oh fantastic excellent well i'll leave you to your um, research and preparing for the new term but thank you so much for joining thank me today you. on the podcast it's been a pleasure thank you so much joe it's been a real pleasure thank you to shelley for speaking with me today for more information about shelley and the calling the shots project head to the University of Southampton website and search for Calling the Shots. If you want to hear more stories from our remarkable researchers, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can listen back to previous episodes in this series at any time. I'm Jo Fisher. Thank you for listening. This has been a podcast from the University of Southampton. <laughs>